Detection of EGFR mutations and effective therapy has been one of the biggest advances in lung cancer treatment, which is why today we're going to explore current and future treatments for these mutations. Welcome to Project Oncology on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Jacob Sands, and here with me today is Dr. Pasi Yana, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a translational thoracic medical oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He's also director of the Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology and the scientific co-director of the Belfer Center for Applied Cancer Sciences. Dr. Yana, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So, Dr. Yana, let's start with testing. I've heard of various different ways of testing and different technologies. How are you evaluating patients when you first see them, and what can you speak to the testing for EGFR mutations? So there are really a couple of different ways of doing genetic testing from an individual's cancer. The best way is to do it directly from the tumor specimen. And today, in 2021, testing should really be part of a larger panel of genes that are being tested, not just for EGFR mutations, but for many of the other genetic alterations where we, at the moment, have regulatory approval for specific targeted therapies. In addition, of course, tumor testing allows you to look at things like histology and protein expression. On the other hand, I recognize that it's not always feasible to do testing from specific tumors. Hence, uh, there has been a technology uh, that's been developed to be able to test from the blood as cancers uh, spill their genetic information into the blood. This is typically successful seven out of 10 times. And so if you do a testing from the blood and it's completely negative, I think that should reflex one to go back to the tumor. But it is an alternative that many of us have come to use. And then we hear about PCR and NGS and the timing that it takes on these different ones. Are there times where you'll order one or do you generally go with NGS? Are there times then that you'd use PCR or some of these other more pointed tests? Yeah, timing is certainly an issue, and we want testing to be as rapid as possible because we need to use it for patient care decision-making. Typical NGS sequencing takes about two weeks to complete from the time of receipt of the specimen, and sometimes that's too long of a period of time. There are tests that one can do. So, for example, EGFR testing can be done as a singleton test, meaning that it's testing just for the EGFR mutation, and there are rapid assays to do that that can take only 24 or 48 hours to complete. But in general, if, if one can wait, the panel-based testing is, is better because you will not only test for EGFR, but you will test for everything else simultaneously. Now, for those results of EGFR mutations, there's a term that's often used for sensitizing mutations. Can you speak a little bit to what sensitizing mutations means and if all EGFR mutations are treated in one way or if there are certain ones to point out? Sure. I would think about EGFR mutations as three major buckets. There are the common EGFR mutations, the exon 19 deletion and LA58R mutations, which are the ones that we typically think about as the most sensitizing mutations. It is the one for which the regulatory approval exists for all of the various EGFR inhibitors and the ones that are typically tested in the frontline setting for clinical trials. The second bucket would be your atypical EGFR mutations. These are the ones that are in exon 18, like G719 mutations, or exon 21, L861Q. Here, these are about 5 to 10% of EGFR mutations. Uh, Afatinib is the only drug with regulatory approval for this subset of EGFR mutations. And finally, there's the rare category, again, about 5 to 10% of the EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations. This is a family of mutations. There's at least 15 different ones that span this region in EGFR exon 20. 
And despite being EGFR mutations, they are not ones where we currently have a drug that is approved for this particular subset, but is one where there's an active effort of finding a drug that would work also in the patients or specifically in the patients that have the EGFR exon 20 insertions. So if we now focus on treatment, let's discuss the most common of the sensitizing mutations, L858R, exon 19 deletion. What is your preference for first-line treatment? Because there are multiple different treatment options that are approved. What's your preference to this? Well, there are multiple ones that are approved, but I think the vast majority of what's being used in the U.S., and certainly my own preference, is to use osimertinib as the first-line therapy. It's associated with an improvement in not only progression-free survival, but overall survival compared to prior-generation EGFR inhibitors. It can penetrate the brain quite well, and so for patients that present with brain metastases, it's an effective way of treating those instead of radiation, and it tends to be better tolerated than the prior generation EGFR inhibitors. So certainly that, as I said, in the U.S., that has migrated into the first-line setting for patients with newly diagnosed uh, advanced EGFR mutant lung cancer. Now, I heard people make the argument that there are other EGFR-directed therapies that would still potentially be something that they could use in the first line and save osimertinib for later on. What is your response to, to those arguments? I think that argument comes from the situation that, you know, when osimertinib was first developed, it was developed against the most common resistance mutation to prior generation EGFR inhibitors, the EGFR T790M mutation, which happens about 50 or 60% of the time to prior generation inhibitors. I think the challenge is several fold. One is that we're not smart enough to figure out who's going to develop the T790M resistance mechanism versus something else. And so to say, to start with a prior generation drug with the hopes of developing T790M resistance, it may happen, it may not happen. I just don't know that we can predict that. The second is that you may not always get to second line therapy. Sometimes patients decline and you don't get to second line therapy and as such be able to treat it with a drug like osimertinib. And I think some of those arguments have, have changed since the overall survival benefit of osimertinib. You know, now it has an overall survival benefit uh, compared to prior generation drugs. It would be not in the patient's best interest to receive a drug that uh, had an inferior survival benefit. I think my own approach, not only to EGFR inhibitors, but any therapy is use your best drug first. Uh, There's no reason to save it for later because not everyone makes it there. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Project Oncology on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Jacob Sands, and I'm speaking with Dr. Pasi Yana about treatment options for EGFR mutations. So continuing our discussion about treatment options, you've mentioned osimertinib in the first-line setting. When patients have progression, at that point, what are you doing? Well, I think we now understand that uh, progression is not a one-size-fits-all process. It's actually quite heterogeneous. There are many different ways in which cancers can develop progression to osimertinib. Some of those ways are targetable, and for some of those ways, we have effective therapies or subsequent therapies. And so it's important to recognize or understand what is the progression, what's happened to the cancer. And again, here, repeat biopsy is the preferred method of evaluating that, because not only will that allow you to have a tumor available for sequencing, but it allows you to look at it under the microscope and ask, did small cell transformation or squamous cell transformation, which have been seen as resistance mechanisms to first-line osimertinib, you know, those would dictate a a very different type of therapy. I think if you are then able to sequence it, you look for the targetable alterations, secondary EGFR mutations that are unique resistance mechanisms to osimertinib. Other pathways can get activated, MET, HER2, others, which we can uh, add a targeted therapy or evaluate that combination in a clinical trial setting. So I think it's, it's important to recognize or understand why or what is happening in the cancer in terms of resistance, because that may lead you down to different pathways. 
So let's get into some of the research pipeline looking ahead. First, we'll start with progression, start with the setting of progression after first line therapy. So things like HER3, for example, are you able to explain a little bit about HER3 and, and the expectations around that and maybe some of the other studies that are, that are being developed? Right. So the HER3 is the HER3 antibody drug conjugate. And here we're leveraging the knowledge and the biology of EGFR immune cancers and that EGFR immune cancers also tend to express HER3, which is one of the other family members, EGFR family members. Now, HER3 is not an osimertinib or any other EGFR inhibitor resistance mechanism. It just comes for the ride. It's used for some of the biologic functions of EGFR immune cancers. And so the HER3 antibody drug conjugate kind of leverages this expression and uses it as a, as a Trojan horse, in a way, to deliver a toxin, a chemotherapy-like molecule, specifically to cancers that express HER3, like EGFR mutant cancers. And so in the studies to date, uh, there's definitely been activity. There's been responses in patients that have failed uh, osimertinib or other multiple EGFR inhibitors. And I think one important feature of the treatment is that since it's not specific to a mechanism of uh, EGFR inhibitor resistance, it works broadly across multiple different resistance mechanisms. Or even in cancers that do develop resistance to osimertinib, and you go through the exercise of sequencing them, and you find nothing targetable or nothing at all. It looks exactly like the pretreatment cancer, except it's clinically resistant. Uh, it still can work in that situation. So it is a is kind of a broader approach to treating resistance, and again, leverages a unique feature of EGFR mutant cancers. Now, there are other antibody drug conjugates out there that have also seen those uh, seen responses in EGFR mutant cancers, like DS1062A, another antibody drug conjugate, this time against the protein called trope 2, also often found expressed in uh, cancers. So I would say that's one approach. Then the second approach that's being tested clinically are going after the specific resistance mechanism. So targeting MET amplification with a combination of an EGFR inhibitor and a MET inhibitor, or targeting EGFR mutations that can happen uh, as a resistance mechanism to osimertinib. Many of those resistance mutations or cancers with those resistance mutations to frontline osimertinib still are sensitive to prior generation EGFR inhibitors. And you can switch someone off into one of those EGFR inhibitors and still achieve a clinical benefit afterwards. And so, so there's a lot of interest in trying to understand or develop a strategy for cancers that develop progression. My thought here is that it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. It's going to be tailored a bit depending on what the actual mechanism is. And now looking forward in the first-line setting, is there anything that you find particularly intriguing as far as first-line trials? Yeah, I think one of the things that I think all of us recognize is that although any GFR immune lung cancer is a, a good example of that is that, you know, although uh, single agent therapy has been quite effective, it ultimately has its limitations. And the question is, how do you improve upon that? And where do you improve upon that? And first-line therapy is certainly one potential option. Now, prior to having osimertinib, when one tried to do combination trials with drugs like afatinib or erlotinib, it was pretty difficult due to toxicity. And so I think osimertinib has opened some of those doors that were previously closed as well. There's a lot of interest in anti-angiogenesis combinations trials. There's data on prior generation EGFR inhibitors with bevacizumab or remesumab showing an improvement in progression-free survival. Whether that same thing applies to osimertinib that is currently being tested. There's targeted therapy combinations, uh, EGFR-TKI combinations, such as with osimertinib and gefitinib, because again, some of the osimertinib resistance mechanisms are sensitive to gefitinib, and if you treat with both drugs simultaneously, uh, you may be able to prevent that mechanism or resistance from happening in the first place. 
as well as targeting further downstream with drugs like MEK inhibition. I would say the biggest surprise over the last few years has been the reemergence of chemotherapy in this space. When EGFR inhibitors were first developed, without much understanding of the current biology that we understand, they were tested together with chemotherapy in broader patient populations and had absolutely no benefit. And subsequently, even after EGFR mutations were identified, smaller studies were done that really didn't seem to suggest that adding chemotherapy to a drug like erlotinib did anything more than erlotinib alone, except to add side effects. But over the last couple of years, there have been a few studies using now modern chemotherapy, carboplatin and pemetrexid, with maintenance pemetrexid, a study from Japan, and a second study from India that added that chemotherapy to gefitinib compared to gefitinib alone and had dramatic improvements in progression-free survival and overall survival and actually in both studies, sort of reintroducing the idea of, well, does chemotherapy now add to an EGFR inhibitor or modern chemotherapy add to an EGFR inhibitor compared to an EGFR inhibitor alone? This has now been extended to osimertinib. There's an ongoing trial called the FLORA2 trial, whereby carboplatin or cisplatin and pemetrexid is being combined with uh, osimertinib versus osimertinib alone to ask the question, does chemotherapy add in this situation as well? Something that we'll hopefully know in the next couple of years. I think the other thing that is going to also evolve kind of similarly as we think about the combination therapies is this concept of who actually needs a combination therapy. We know that if you start in the FLORA trial and the frontline osimertinib trial, at three years, 28% of the patients who started on osimertinib were still on osimertinib. I would love to be able to identify those 28% of patients from the beginning and say, you have a good prognosis, EGFR mutant lung cancer, you'll do fine with osimertinib for multiple years. And at the same time, identify the individuals who have progression either at the median or even sooner than the median, despite having the same EGFR mutation, they may have high-risk cancer, however defined. And maybe these are individuals who need the more intensified therapy, the chemo combos or the targeted therapy combos. I think that's an aspirational goal. I don't think we're there yet, but hopefully we will get there at some point. Well, in a field that's fairly recent with EGFR mutations, it is exciting to hear about so much on the horizon as well. With that, I also want to congratulate you now on having the EGFR Center there. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Pasiana, for joining me to discuss treatment options and testing for EGFR mutations. Dr. Yana, absolutely wonderful having you on the program. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Jacob Sands. To access this and other episodes in our series, visit reachmd.com slash projectoncology, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.